On May 6, 1877, just 10 months after the Battle of Little Bighorn, the legendary Crazy Horse led nearly 900 Lakota and Cheyenne to Fort Robinson, Nebraska. It was time to surrender. Five months later, Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce would do the same, to fight no more forever. Sitting Bull would hold out until July of 1881 when he, too, would lay down his arms. Then finally, on September 4, 1886, the mighty Apache leader Geronimo surrendered to the U.S. Army in Skeleton Canyon, present-day southeastern Arizona, the last American Indian war chief to formally surrender to the United States. And with Geronimo, so went the Indian Wars. The buffalo were gone, the railroads and churches were here to stay, and the Wild West, for the most part, was over. But what if I were to tell you that not all of the Apache surrendered, that there were a few holdouts who not only continued to live free, but continued to make war with their enemies as well, for the next 45 years? My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Francisco Fimbres had a score to settle. And I gotta say, after hearing his story, I don't blame him. It was his great misfortune to witness a small group of Apache suddenly attack his pregnant wife, Maria. Sara yanked off her horse and stabbed multiple times before having her throat slit. Her still bleeding body unceremoniously tossed off into a ravine. In the time it took Francisco to close the distance, the Apache were gone, having fled with the couple's three-year-old son, Gerardo, who had been riding with his mother. As you can imagine, Francisco spent the next couple of years hunting down these Apache and, with the help of some Norte Americano gunmen, was somewhat able to extract revenge. Even posed for some newspapermen and their cameras, holding a fistful of Apache scalps, grim trophies of retribution. As far as young Gerardo goes, he was never recovered, at least not alive. Now, what I just told you is a true story. And back in the day, it was a fairly common story there in the Southwest. The Apache had been conducting raids and stealing children on both sides of our southern border well before there ever was any border. First against other tribes as they muscled in on their territory, then against the Spanish, then the Mexicans and the Americans that followed. And it's not a one-sided story either. You'd be mistaken to think that the Apache were always the aggressors or the persistent quote-unquote bad guys. Remember, as cliche as it sounds, the idea of history oftentimes being written by the victors is kind of accurate. God only knows how many atrocities were committed against the Apache that were never recorded. Evils that only the devil himself remembers. As it is, there are plenty of accounts of cruelty that we are aware of. Truth is, many a friendly or peaceful Apache village was massacred. Women were raped. Children killed or enslaved. Treaties broken. And many an Apache warrior rode out with revenge in his heart. Just like Francisco Fimbres. Men like Geronimo who happened to be in a village trading for supplies one day, came back and found his entire family murdered at the hands of a Mexican militia. His wife, his mother, his three little children, all dead. Geronimo loved his family just as much as Francisco loved his, and both men in their own eyes were justified. The Apache belonged to the Athabascan language group, and their cousins going way back with the Navajo. Although the two tribes would eventually become enemies, they both referred to themselves as the Dene, the people. Hey, real quick, I just want to correct that last statement. I did a little fact-checking on myself, and while I was able to find sources affirming that the Apache called themselves Dene, I found many other sources stating otherwise. 
I couldn't really determine anything conclusively. So y'all know me. I picked up the phone and called the Apache. I'm not going to say which reservation, but I was able to speak with a very nice lady who informed me that her particular band referred to themselves as NDE. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. My apologies to any Apache listening, but it is spelled N-D-E. While the Apache language, just like that of the Navajo, is rooted in Athabascan, it's also splintered into various sub-dialects, and thus several bands of Apache had different names for themselves that all loosely translated into some version of the same thing, the people. All right, back to the story. The word Apache comes from the Zuni term Apachu, which means enemy. Interesting side note on the Athabascan language group. Most of the tribes who spoke or currently speak this language are concentrated up in Alaska and Western Canada. And then you've got the Apache and the Navajo. At some point centuries ago, these people who were so synonymous with the Southwest got their start up there in the Great White North. They likely entered Texas sometime in the early 1500s, and the first known contact between Europeans and Apache might have possibly been as early as 1541 when Coronado was tramping around the Texas Panhandle. 150 years or so later, the Apache could be found further to the south and west, having been pushed out by the Comanche. In return, they, the Apache, forcibly took the territory of other, smaller tribes, even absorbed some of them. And, of course, at some point following that first contact with Coronado, things took a turn for the worse. In just the year 1737 alone, the Spanish reported that the Apache had destroyed 15 rancheros, burned numerous missions and mines, killed over 200 civilians, and stole hundreds of head of livestock. The Spanish would try to strike back, but for the most part, those early punitive responses were failures. Apache raids would only increase in the years to come. Between the years 1771 and 1776, a five-year period, over 1,600 Spaniards were killed. About 150 captured, over 100 ranches abandoned, and over 68,000 animals stolen. And that was just in the states of Cujilla and Chihuahua. Several decades later, Mexico would gain her independence from Spain. That didn't mean too much to the Apache. Just the same old enemy with a different name. Eventually, however, a new type of foreigner began drifting on down into the uh, Pacheria. Strange bearded wild men from the east, pale faces who dressed in animal skins, looking to trap beaver in Apache waters. Men with names like Jed Smith and Bill Williams, harbingers of manifest destiny. And believe it or not, many of these same Apache who raided freely against the Mexicans did have friendly relations with the Americans in Arizona. At least they did until 1862. A 12-year-old boy named Felix Ward, you may know him by the name he took as an adult, Mickey Free, was kidnapped by the Apache. A U.S. Army officer, Lieutenant George Bascom, erroneously blamed Cochise and his band and tried to hold the chief as a hostage. Things quickly escalated and the drums of war began sounding all throughout the region and would not stop for another quarter of a century. Still, though, not everyone was for war. Take the great Apache chief Mangus Coloradus. In January of 1863, he arrived at Fort McLean in present-day New Mexico under a white flag looking to talk peace. For his efforts, he was promptly arrested tortured and murdered, had his head cut off, boiled, and sent to New York City. And speaking of Kit Carson, he would later help round up the Mescalero and the Hickoria bands, forcing them to the Bosque Redondo, a reservation that, according to some, was more like a concentration camp. And you know, I could go on and on. This episode isn't meant to be any grand history of the Apache people or a detailed accounts of the wrongs committed against them or even their aggressions against others. 
Now, I know I'm glossing over a whole lot of events here, but eventually you'd have Geronimo and his band of just 40 fighters being hunted down by 5,000 soldiers, nearly one-fourth of the entire standing United States Army, until even he surrendered in 1886, a full decade after Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull decimated Custer's command up there on the greasy grass. And I always thought that was pretty much it for, you know, the last of the free and wild Apache. As I touched on briefly at the beginning of this episode, there's nothing particularly unique about Francisco Fimbres losing his wife and children to the Apache. What makes this story distinctive is not because of what happened or even where it happened. Now, what makes the Fimbres story stand out is when it happened. It wasn't during the reign of Mangus Colorados or Cochise or Victorio. It wasn't even during the years when Geronimo was on the run. Nope. The murder of Maria Fimbres and the subsequent quest for revenge would happen much much later, long after even Geronimo himself was in the grave. The year was 1927, the same year that Hollywood debuted a Western movie called Nevada, starring Gary Cooper as an ex-outlaw hired to protect a rancher's daughter. The same year that the Harlem Globetrotters played their first game. The same year that Alfred Hitchcock directed his first film. The year Babe Ruth became the highest paid player in the history of Major League Baseball. Calvin Coolidge was president, Lindbergh made his famous flight across the Atlantic, and there were still people getting attacked by renegade Apache. I guess old Geronimo wasn't really the last of the holdouts after all. Turns out there were other free Apache who refused to come in and settle on the reservation. They simply disappeared deep into the Sierra Madres of Mexico, choosing to live the old way. And evidently, the old way included making the same lightning-quick blitz-like raids that they'd perfected centuries ago. And the attack on Francisco's family wasn't no one-off either. While that particular incident took place in the remote reaches of the Mexican state of Sonora, it was only a few years prior when this same band of Apache made their final attack across the border into the United States. That year was 1924, and the holdouts caught up with an unlucky cowboy named Frank Fisher in the Animas Mountains there in the southwest corner of New Mexico. Killed him and ransacked a couple of ranches while they were at it. Now, if that's not interesting enough, check this out. Following the killing of Mr. Fisher, a posse was able to get close enough to these fleeing renegades to catch a glimpse of them. And one of the things they noticed was a tall white man riding with them, with a long blonde beard, flowing blonde hair. And evidently, this was not the first time this mysterious white Apache had been seen. Y'all, I got a history boner when I found out about this. Who the hell were these 20th century Apaches still making raids when my dang mamma was a little girl? And who was this gringo riding with them? All right, so it's like this. It looks like, at least as far as I can tell, there were at least six of Geronimo's warriors that did not surrender when he did. Other small bands likewise didn't come into the reservations. Some of these free Apache may have been part of Chato's band of Chiricahuas. Now, Chato himself was a scout for the army when they were hunting down Geronimo in 1886. He even led a peace delegation to Washington, D.C., where he was awarded a medal by President Grover Cleveland. Unfortunately for him, his service did not matter. He was sent with Geronimo and all the other Chiricahuas to prison in Florida, simply for being Apache. Got to imagine that made for some awkward conversations around the old prison yard. Uh, anyway, there is a lot of speculation whether or not these 20th century Apache were members of Chato's band that escaped being sent to Florida, as well as being supplemented over the years by recruits who wandered on down from the San Carlos Reservation in Arizona. There's also rumors that the notorious Apache kid would eventually join them as well. As far as the mysterious white man goes, some people think that might have been a guy named Charlie McComas. 
1883, young Charlie's family were attacked by a group of Apache being led by the aforementioned Tato. And while Charlie's parents were killed, he himself was spared and taken captive. He may have possibly been killed soon thereafter. Or he may have been the big white man riding with those warriors some 30-odd years later. He would have been about in his late 40s in 1924. More on Charlie McComas later, but just one last thing on that cowboy who got killed. It reminded me of a passage in Larry McMurtry's Streets of Laredo. It's a work of fiction, the sequel to Lonesome Dove, but the very real Charles Goodnight plays a pretty big role in it. The passage in particular features a fictionalized version of an older Charlie Goodnight alone and contemplating the old days and whether or not he should render aid to an equally old yet fictional Captain Woodrow F. Call. I won't go into any more of the plot details, but I will go ahead and read the relevant portion. It'll make sense in a minute, just bear with me. It goes, quote, Goodnight knew that it had mainly been the fact that he was there on his ranch with his wife and cowhands that had encouraged the first trickle of settlements into the panhandle. Thereafter, the trickle had increased. Soon the trickle grew until there were towns and villages and sufficient law that sidearms gradually ceased to be a part of everyday dress. All of his cowboys still wore pistols, of course. They claimed they kept them to use on snakes. But in fact, few of them could shoot well enough with a pistol to hit a rattlesnake at under 10 shots at Point Blank range. The cowboys wore the guns from wistfulness, Goodnight supposed. They wanted to feel that they were living in a West that was still wild. It was harmless nostalgia for the most part. As long as they didn't injure themselves or the livestock, he put no strictures on their use of firearms. But the panhandle was no longer the Wild West, not by a long shot. Cowboys could play and posture all they wanted, adjusting their holsters and practicing fast draws. The fact was they were herdsmen, not gunfighters, and it would be colossal bad luck if their herding ever brought them into contact with a real killer of the sort that had once been common in the West. If any of his cowboys were that unlucky, they would certainly be killed. Roping and branding and riding pitching horses was no preparation for dealing with deadly men. End quote. Now that cowboy in 1924, I don't know how old he was. More than likely, he was born well after Geronimo surrendered. I doubt he had even been alive in what we consider the old Wild West days. But he'd likely heard the stories, and who knows, maybe he was even carrying a six-shooter on his hip that day. You know, something to kill snakes with. He never stood a chance. And that's no disrespect to him. I'm sure he was more than able to take care of himself and handle the odd rustler or horse thief. But these Apache would have been a different breed than anything he would have ever encountered. Hell, just the idea that he could have been attacked by the Apache in the year of our Lord 1924 would have never even crossed this man's mind. That's damn near the equivalent of me going to check my mail and getting attacked by Vikings. Or going out to walk my dog and seeing mounted Mongolian raiders cresting the hill. It's unheard of. This was 1924. Betty freaking White was already alive. A lot of people who were alive right now, still sucking in air, were alive when that cowboy was killed by the Apache. And this stuff blows my mind. Shout out to Betty White, by the way. She just celebrated her 99th birthday not too long ago. That's 99 swats I owe you when I see you, Betty. Powder up that old donk and get it ready, you old silver fox. Anyway, these renegade Apache would soon become known as the Bronco Apache. And no, not because they loved Ford Broncos. However, Chato, years after he was finally released from prison in Florida, would die after he accidentally drove his Ford Model T off the road in New Mexico in 1934. And that's a true story, not one of my stupid jokes. In all actuality, the word bronco comes from the Spanish word for rough or gruff. That's likely why these holdouts were given the name. There's also a theory that it could have just been a bastardization of the word badanku, which was the name of one particular band of the Chiricahua. 
And there's more to the Francisco Fiembre story than my short, he got revenge summary. And I do want to give special credit to a lady named Marjorie Hunt Watkinson. Usually I stumble upon some pretty cool sources when I'm doing what passes for research for this podcast. But I think this is the first time I've ever used a thesis. And not only one, but two theses. Uh, the one I want to give credit to now is called A Savage Land, Violence and Trauma in the 19th Century American Southwest. It was submitted by Marjorie Watkinson as a thesis in partial fulfillment of the requirements for the degree of Doctor of Philosophy. And it was approved by the Graduate Supervisory Committee of Arizona State University in May of 2020. And it's pretty good. I will link to it in my episode show notes. It's long, but well worth the read. You can find all the grisly details of the Fimbrace killing in her thesis, as well as the aftermath. According to Watkinson, and I'm going to read directly from her amazing thesis here, after Francisco, quote, spent two years of combing the rugged landscape for his son and bent on revenge for his wife, the trail went cold. While traveling, Fimbrace met Gilberto Valenzuelo, a candidate in the Mexican presidential election, and Ricardo Tapite, a senator from Sonora. Moved by his tragic story, these two men convinced the mayors of both Agua Prieta, Sonora, and Douglas, Arizona, to sponsor a more formal expedition into the mountains. Fimbrace created a hodgepodge team of irregular militiamen of predominantly non-Mexican lineage. And shortly thereafter, towns and cities in the region and then across the nation picked up the story of this great Indian hunting venture, all while promoting tourism and trade in the borderland region. Soon people from around the nation began to send in applications to go on an Apache hunt with the Fimbrace crew, revealing the wider issue of violent racism outside of the Southwest. One such applicant passionately stated, I never fought Indians, but I have chased spicks all around Haiti and Nicaragua and was in the landing and occupation of Veracruz. I guess I'll have the guts to chase these birds. If you contemplate going in after those Indians soon, I shall count it a very great privilege to join you. I have hunted big game in many parts of America, but I am sure shooting at an Apache Indian would give me a greater thrill than any I have heretofore shot at. Holy shit. Uh, Ms. Watkins then states, quote, This dramatic event known as the Fimbrace Expedition did not belong to the violent decades of the Apache Wars in the 1880s. Instead, this last great opportunity to hunt for Apache, to literally hunt for people in North America, exploded and then fizzled out between the years of 1927 and 1930. Now, uh, it's me talking now. Um, Francisco and his gunmen would find and kill some Apache. In 1930, they finally located and killed three of them, one man and two women. They scalped them all and beheaded the man. If you do some Googling, I'm sure you'll be able to find a picture of Francisco posing with their scalps. Trophies that one bystander would later claim were full of fleas. Not long after this incident, young Gerardo, having lived this point for three years among the Bronco Apache, was found dead. He had literally been stoned to death and then carved up, supposedly as a revenge for the death of the three Apache. After this, it was pretty much just out-and-out war between the nation of Mexico and those remaining holdouts. More Apache were killed, and in return, more Mexicans were killed. Senor Fimbres' band of killers was eventually disbanded. What few warriors the Bronco Apache had left were mostly women. Hell, I didn't mention it earlier, but it was allegedly women who attacked and killed Francisco's wife, Maria. And here's a plot twist for you. The attack on Fimbres may have been a targeted attack. It also may have been done out of revenge. This stuff goes deep, y'all. I can't believe I had never heard about this until a few months ago. 
So when Francisco was a little boy, his dad went after some of these Sierra Madre Apaches that had stolen some cattle. They got away, but Francisco's pop captured a 12-year-old girl who was acting as a lookout. He adopted this child, named her Lupe, and raised her as a Mexican. Story goes that Lupe believed that her Apache mother had ordered the 1927 attack and kidnapping as a revenge for the Fimbres family taking her when she was little, and that her mother was the one that killed Maria. Now, I don't know how true all this is, and even the details around the Fimbres attack do differ, you know, depending on which source you find, but the results are the same. What stragglers that were left after young Gerardo was found dead would be picked off here and there by ranchers or Mexican government officials, just as the Sierra Madres were cut up with new logging roads and sawmills. In 1933, a young girl was one of the last to be captured. El Nina Branca, they called her. The wild girl. She was 12 or maybe 13 and found wandering near the Tasa Hinora Mountains, nearly naked. Some vaqueros got hold of her and took her to town where she was locked up in the jailhouse. And there she stayed, balled up in a corner, refusing to speak or make eye contact with her captors or even eat anything, even as the throngs of onlookers came to gawk at her day after day. She died there in that jail cell, that wild girl, starved to death. Once again, just to put this all into perspective, this was 1933, okay? That's the year when Willie Nelson was born. That's the year King Kong premiered on the big screen. The year that both chocolate chip cookies and the game Monopoly were invented. And it will never cease to amaze me that people were still chasing after wild Apaches. Not for long, though. Eventually, things did quiet down there in the Sierras. In 1934, an anthropologist by the name of Grenville Goodwin, how's that for a name, heard tell from some Apache living on reservations in Arizona that there were still a couple of dozen holdouts down in Mexico. Goodwin attempted to make contact, and so did U.S. government officials, but they came up empty-handed. A few years later, in 1937, Norwegian anthropologist-slash-adventurer Helge Ankstad went up into the Sierra Madre with some Apache guides to see if he could find these, quote, lost Apache, as he called them. His guides were more interested in looking for some treasure they had heard about, and they ended up disappearing on him for a while. Ingstad never did find any Apache, but there was, I guess, some suspicion that his guides did and never told him about it. You know, either the rumors of the holdouts was false, or they had already all been killed off, or they remained hidden. And if they did remain hidden, for how long? When I first read about these so-called Bronco Apache, I couldn't help but remember that movie The Last of the Dogmen, an admittedly corny film from the 90s starring Tom Berenger as a manhunter who accidentally discovers a long-lost band of Cheyenne still living the old way in a remote area of Montana. Loved it when I was a kid. I even fantasized about going hiking out in the woods and stumbling upon some undiscovered tribe and being adopted by them. But I knew it was bullshit. In our modern times, I think I can say with confidence that there is nowhere on the North American continent, Mexico included, where a hidden band of Native Americans are still living, you know, after having fled civilization or the reservation a century ago. But this was not the case, obviously, in the 1930s. Interestingly enough, a Chiricahua who once rode with Geronimo, a man named Jason Betsinez, wrote an autobiography in 1958. In the book titled I Followed Geronimo, which is available on Amazon, Jason stated that as of the date of that publication, the Bronco Apache and their descendants were still out there in the mountains, running free. And if there were still free and wild Apache in 1958, could that mean that there still could be some out there? Somewhere? I doubt it, but damn it, it's fun to think about. If I were more introspective, I'd wonder what it is about the idea of there being wild Apache or any wild Native Americans still out there living free that appeals to me so much. 
I mean, the tale of the Bronco Apache certainly isn't a happy one. It sees the Fimbres family destroyed and the Apache decimated. You know, they were probably constantly on the run, constantly starving. Hell, the entire history of the Apache people from, you know, the mid-19th century to our story's timeline is nothing but tragedy. And then you got that poor girl who starved to death in a jail cell. It's a sad story all the way around. But still, there's something about that lifestyle that I think draws us in, or at least draws me in. It's partly what makes this era, you know, the Wild West era, so interesting. It was wild. You could just ride your horse out into the great unknown and be 100% free. Living off the land, or, you know, as Johnny Cash once sang, living off muscle, guts, and luck. Just like John Coulter, Jim Bridger. Am I over-romanticizing it? Hell yes, I am. It was a destitute life full of hardship. Sure, it was free of alarm clocks and taxes and traffic jams. But anyone out there who fantasizes about living off the land needs to read up more on how often the Native Americans would go through starving times. And they were born hunters. Or how about just living without a dentist? Or access to antibiotics? Flushing toilets? Now, I think the appeal of the wildlife goes deeper. I've discussed the book Tribe by Sebastian Younger on this podcast before. He discusses in part how, quote, a surprising amount of Americans left civilization to live with the Native Americans. They married them, were adopted by them, and on some occasions even fought alongside them. And the opposite almost never happened. The Native Americans or indigenous almost never ran away to join white society. So, for the millionth time, I ask, why is that? What is it that the early American settlers found appealing about that lifestyle? What is it that we, even nowadays, find appealing about it? And why did this little band of Apache prefer to live that way as opposed to the way everybody else was living? You know, they knew of their cousins up north at the border, living on reservations, in houses. Some of them even had cars to drive, living in relative comfort. I'm sure part of the reason they stayed out there in the Sierra Madres was fear. Every time they sucked their heads up out of the brush, they were getting shot at. And they'd seen or heard stories of how their people were slaughtered elsewhere. Surely they heard of how Geronimo and Chateau were sent off to rot in that Florida prison. Sweaty, humid, malaria-ridden Florida. Where, according to a writer from the Washington Post, the Apache, quote, dropped like flies at frost time. Did you know there was actually some competition to decide where Geronimo and his Apache would do time? The editor of the Pensacolian newspaper, hoping to bring in some tourist money, claimed that Geronimo would be, quote, an attraction which will bring here a great many visitors. And when the famous Patchy arrived, they would, quote, welcome the nation's distinguished guests and promise to keep them so safely under lock and key that they will forget their hair-raising proclivities and become good Indians. And that's exactly what happened, at least the part about keeping them under lock and key and turning them into an attraction. By February of 1887, the tourists began flocking in from far and wide to see these prisoners. Admission was 50 cents for adults and 25 cents for children. On one recorded Sunday alone, 459 tourists came to gawk at Geronimo, the proud warrior turned sideshow freak. Eventually, these captive Apache were transferred to Alabama, at least the ones that survived. And then in 1896, they were sent to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. As for Geronimo, he'd never see his old stomping grounds again. He did do quite a bit of traveling, though, to expositions and fairs and parades. He even made it all the way to Washington, D.C., just like Chato, and rode in Roosevelt's inauguration. All under guard, by the way. The old fighter was accompanied everywhere he went by armed soldiers. Finally, in the year 1909, at nearly 80 years of age, Geronimo was found in a puddle of water where he had lain all that cold February night after either falling or being thrown from his horse. The old man was tough, though, and still clinging to life. He'd linger another five days before passing on to the next world. His dying words were, I should have never surrendered. 
I should have fought until I was the last man alive. I wonder if Geronimo knew about the Bronco Apache down in Mexico, still raising hair. And if so, I wonder if he ever wished he were with them. After seeing all that civilization and all that the white man had to offer, you know, the grand parades, the big cities, meeting the president of the United States of America, Geronimo still found it lacking. And I wonder if news of Geronimo ever trickled on down to the Broncos. I wonder if they knew of his fate in Florida, if they knew how he was paraded around like some museum artifact, a living spoil of war, the supposed last of a supposed defeated people. No wonder they chose to remain free. Especially given the fact that between the years 1850 and 1915, the population of the Apache was dropped by an astonishing 95%. I reckon they were lucky, though. You know, some tribes were completely wiped out. The Apache are tough, and thankfully, they're still around. As of the 2010 U.S. Census, there were nearly 65,000 Apache currently alive. By the way, 11 Apache have been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Lest you think the stories of their bravery are just that. Stories. Or lest you think they somehow forgot how to be warriors. They're a proud, tough, resilient people with a proud history. And even Geronimo's bloodline lives on. In a 2018 article I found published in Indian Country Today, titled Meet the Geronimos, Robert Geronimo, great-grandson of the Geronimo, says that if he, quote, could speak with his famous ancestor, he'd tell him be proud. We're still here. We're not gone. We're still alive and doing decently well. Robert's niece, Hope Geronimo, who was 21 when this article was written, so, you know, she's like 23 or 24 as of this recording, is the youngest medicine woman among the Mescaleros. Of Geronimo, she said, quote, He was somebody who had visions. I think I do too sometimes. I call out something and the next thing you know, it happens. Hope went on to say that it feels as if her tribe's traditional practices, quote, picked her. And while she embraces that honor, the gift comes at a social cost. Something I've noticed, people have gotten scared of me, she said. There's times I can feel something's going to happen. And when it does, people freak out on me. So I'm quiet. I won't say anything. I keep it to myself. But I think that was something passed on to me from him, him being Geronimo. Hope also said that she conducts both her parental and medicine woman duties with a grave sense of responsibility. I wouldn't want to be a disappointment to my ancestors, she said. I like that. You know, me personally, I believe in God. I believe in the afterlife. I believe that Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. I also, the older I get, feels like there's a whole lot more to it than that more than has ever been written down in any book. I sometimes feel like there's a whole lot of other things that play around us, things we can't necessarily see, and some things that only certain people can see, through the veil, so to speak. So maybe there's something to what Hope thinks. Maybe something that's no longer of this world did indeed pick her. And there is like a certain essence, I guess, that a lot of cultures lose after a while. For people like the Apache that continue to hold to their traditions, you know, their memories and practices, it binds them makes them strong, helps them to persevere and hopefully continue to provide good lives for their children and give them a sense of worth, a sense of being part of something bigger than themselves. Going back to the book Tribe, this is one of those theories of why the so-called civilized folks are so eager to go live with the natives, that tribal lifestyle. You know, a close-knit community of people, small family bands as opposed to living like we do now, all crowded up in cities, not even knowing the names of our next-door neighbors. I guess what I'm trying to say is it looks to me as if Hope and Robert Geronimo are carrying on these Apache traditions. They'll never hear this, and there's absolutely no reason for either one of them to care about what I have to say, but I don't think they should worry too much about letting their ancestors down. 
just from what little I've read, it seems like they got that same warrior spirit, just like the ones that came before, and that they are fighting for their people's survival. Fight just looks different nowadays. All that said, I do still wonder, though, what happened to any of the remnants of the Broncos? You know, were they all killed, or did some of them slip through the cracks? Maybe sneak across the border and take to living on a reservation? I mentioned the lady that Francisco's father captured. She obviously somewhat assimilated amongst the Mexicans. And I have heard stories of other indigenous people in Mexico passing themselves and their children off as Hispanic, just to get by. I'm sure that happened quite a bit. And there was at least one Bronco Apache who was assimilated into our modern culture. Carmelita or Carmela Harris. Carmela was captured as a child and adopted by an American lady living in Sonora named Dixie Harris. She would later move to Los Angeles and took Carmela with her. And according to a teenage Carmela, she preferred high school in Los Angeles as opposed to the wilds of the Sierras. She was quoted as saying, I was often afraid and I do not want to return. Nana, that was her grandma, uh, by the time she was captured, her parents were already dead. Nana was so strict and we were not allowed to do anything. Once there was another small child who cried a lot, Nana strangled her until she died. We dared not make any noise, but once in a while, I remember that a woman sang me to sleep. According to a 2016 article in Cowboys and Indians that I will link to, Carmela Harris graduated high school in Tuyunga, California, I think that's how you pronounce it, and became a nurse. She never married and continued to live with Dixie Harris. In 1972, they left California and immigrated to a farmhouse in the Italian hill town of Perugia, or Perugia. According to this article, Carmela loved Italy and said it was the happiest time of her life. But she died suddenly in her mid-40s after fainting while standing up and smashing her head on the ground. She was buried in Perugia, and many years later, in the attic of the Tiunga house, the Harris family found the little buckskin dress that her grandmother had sewn for her. That was 1976 when she died. That's crazy, man. Born a wild and free Apache, and still alive when many of you listening right now were already born. And I hope that is true about her having the time of her life in Italy. Hope she was finally at peace, you know, far away from the violence of Sonora. And I guess it's not really all that much of a rarity. I mean, there are pretty remote people still living in South America. People that could be considered uncontacted. And of course, there's the North Sentinelese living on that island in the Indian Ocean. They're protected, but every now and then when a brave soul decides to venture onto the island, they make quick work of them. Killed a missionary there on the beach just three years ago. We don't even know what these people call themselves or what language they speak. They have no concept of the internet. What metal tools they have, they salvage from a shipwreck. I don't know. I guess I get a sense of comfort knowing that they're out there, raw and unsullied. But as far as North America goes, these Bronco Apache were the last of the last. As far as that white man I mentioned earlier that was seen riding with the Apache, a captured Bronco woman would later claim he was killed some years prior to 1940. They had gotten into a quarrel with an Apache over a woman and got himself stabbed to death. The Apache threw his body in a pit not too far south from the Arizona border. Evidently, this lady even guided some Americans to the site where they did discover the remains of a body. Whether or not this was Charlie McComas, the captive boy is still up for debate. Now, earlier I mentioned a second thesis I found that I really enjoyed. It's titled The Last Apache Broncho, The Apache Outlaw in Popular Imagination, 1866-2013, by Leah Candelin Cook. And yes, I will link to it. 
This thesis was submitted in partial fulfillment of the requirements for the degree of Master of Arts History at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque in 2014. Really good information and uh, just one little tidbit I found highly amusing. It goes as follows. Uh, Leah writes, quote, on a recent episode of the PBS program Finding Your Roots, which traces the ancestral paths of celebrities, entourage actor Adrian Grenier tells host Henry Louis Gates Jr. that he most identifies with the Apache part of his heritage. Later in the program, Gates informs the actor that he has discovered that Grenier does not, in fact, have any Apache blood, but is almost wholly Hispanic and even has an ancestor who was a conquistador on one of Juan de Oneda's expeditions. The news greatly upsets Grenier. I don't identify with that spirit. I would like to think that I was part of a more peaceful ancestry. Has this guy ever read a book on the Apache? And just to bring it full circle, one final note from the first thesis I mentioned written by Marjorie Watkinson. I'm going to read this in full because it really summarizes so much of this whole damn story. She writes, quote, Then in the autumn of 1930, Fimbres returned with the triumphal news that he had found and killed three Apaches, two women and one man, who he believed to be responsible for the death of his beloved. But the question of what happened to Gerardo remained unanswered until Grenville Goodwin's son, Neil Goodwin, tracked down a trusted friend of Fimbres in the 1990s who had heard him speak of the young boy's fate. Fimbres had told his friend that a few days after killing, two Mexicans traveling in the mountains stumbled upon the carefully buried remains of the murdered Apaches. The band had obviously returned to the area after Fimbres and his men had left the scene and the mutilated bodies of their Apache family members. Close by these grave mounds tied to a tree sat Gerardo, stoned to death by the Apaches who had adopted him, fed him, clothed him, and had obviously loved him, only to make him into a pawn in the cycles of violence that continued to consume his and their world. While no tangible evidence exists to prove the death of Gerardo outside of this oral history, physical proof does exist of the actions of Francisco Fimbres, whose desire for vengeance likely cost him the life of his boy. A black and white grainy photo of Francisco standing before a pile of the captured property of these three Apache he claimed to have killed with his men. The mayor of Nacori Chico stands nearby, and a three-year-old Mexican boy looks on with a flat expression. In this image, loosely dangling from Francisco's hand, spins the severed head, or perhaps the bloodied, matted scalp, of a 20th century Apache woman caught up in the dark heart of a still savage land. To stare deeply into the heart of darkness is to peer into a mirror. Many modern-day Americans are uncomfortable with the universalization of trauma for perpetrators of violence, particularly when those perpetrators are also American. This sense of unease stems from the fear that, should we look into that mirror of darkness, that a human face will look back at us from that mirror. A face that shatters us into shards because he has our eyes, our laugh, and our smile. Rapists, murderers, and genocidaires throughout our human past murdered with joy in the same manner that they kissed their spouses, hugged their children, and sang in church on Sundays. If these men can so easily stare into the darkness and come back whole, can they truly be different from us? And at what point in our own lives could we in turn slip off into that great precipice and into a reflective hell of our own making? Powerful stuff. History is dark, y'all, and it's complicated. Our heroes are flawed and so are we. It's this podcaster's opinion that that darkness resides in all of us. 
You know, we get so astonished and flabbergasted at what these historical figures did because we can't imagine ever being in that type of situation or doing the things that they did. We never act that way, right? All right. I would like to extend a big thank you to the lady I spoke with at the undisclosed Apache reservation. I will also refrain from using her name, but we did talk for a few minutes. And one thing that she was very clear about, something that I tend to agree with, is that when it comes to the Apache and Apache history in general, things can get very complex. Now, this is just me speaking, but as an outsider looking in, all that I can really rely on is the written history. And this goes not just for the Apache, but any other tribe I cover as well. I do put a certain amount of faith in the historians and the reputable researchers with legit primary sources. But at the end of the day, the Apache weren't exactly writing a whole bunch of stuff down, at least not back in those days. So a lot of the recorded history does tend to be a little one-sided. As with every topic covered here on the Wild West Extravaganza, I do try to be as accurate and unbiased as possible. But as you're aware, I still get stuff wrong from time to time. If there's anything on today's episode that you disagree with or you'd like to correct me on, please do not hesitate to hit me up, josh at wildwestextra.com. Also earlier, I did give a shout out to Betty White, who was still alive when I first recorded this episode. Sadly, she's no longer with us. And sadly, I was not able to give her those birthday swats. I would like to dedicate this episode to listener Wilson. I don't want to get all corny here, but you've seen that darkness firsthand and you made it back. I know I ain't telling you nothing you don't already know, but you're still alive. Your heart's still beating. And that means your life has purpose, a deep, meaningful purpose, even when it don't make no damn sense. Your time in uniform may be over, but just like with the Apache, you're still in the game and you still got a mission. It just looks a hell of a lot different than the one you were trained for. You got this. Even when you don't think you do, you got this. And that goes out to anybody who may be struggling right now. Life ain't easy. and Sometimes it has a tendency to knock us on our asses. But you just got to keep getting back up. I don't know any other way of putting it than that. Just got to keep getting back up. All right. I think that's about it for this week. If you like what you hear, please share this episode with someone. I know you're out there on Facebook giggling with your friends, so why not take a moment to share a link to the old Wild West extravaganza while you're at it. And if you haven't already, please go on over to wildwestextra.com. Hit that button up top that says newsletter. It is 100% free, and you'll be in a super cool, totally not lame club of people who get super cool and totally not lame emails from me. Oh, and I am still working on that Spotify playlist that I promised. Once it's finished, I will send out a link via said newsletter. All right, that's all I got. Till next week, adios. That's 99 swats I owe you when I see you, Betty.